you born and where? Uh, July 1948, at the start of the NHS. Okay. Um, and in fact, when I was 50, and the NHS was 50, I was interviewed by the EDP. I was a centrefold. Okay. <laughs> with my bow tie on. <laughs> um, so your, your down... parents perhaps thought this was an auspicious year. They were hoping for a doctor, and yeah. they'd, they'd make sure that you arrived in time for the NHS. Well, <laughs> yes. Um, but it was down in, down in London, South London, um, in the Clapham area, right. before it became posh. Okay, all right. So that's why you were being discreet about where that's exactly. Right. And okay. I lived there until I was about eight when my parents, like a lot of people, moved out into Kent um, to commuter land. Okay. Do you have any, remem any memories of being in London at that time, of that early life? Yes, I do. Um, <clears throat> I can remember going to school. I can remember opposite where we used to live in a flat, which was above a garage, uh, there were prefabs from bomb damage during the war. Uh, there was still a lot of bomb damage in South London, all around uh, the South Bank. It was a terrible place. Sure. A lot of wreckage there. Um, Good to play in. I can remember the. I can remember very clearly the smog of 1953, right. which was absolutely yes. extraordinary. Um, can you speak up, please? Yes, of course. I can remember, so I was in, do you want me to talk about that? Because yes, it was an yeah. extraordinary event, because it had big health issues. Mm. Um, we just happened to be out in my father's car. <clears throat> and the smog came down, I was my aunt, my mother, my sister, obviously my father. The fog was unbelievably thick. You could see about six to eight feet. Mm. My uncle knew that we were out, my aunt's husband, and he walked from... They lived in an adjacent property. He walked up to Clapham Common, identified my father's car by the sound of the engine, <laughs> because there weren't as many cars on the road in those yeah. days. And he then proceeded to hold his hand on the bonnet and feel his way back <coughs> to where we lived in King's Avenue. When we got in, all of our faces were completely black and sooty. My mother's and my aunt's stockings had holes in them from the sulfuric acid and the nitric acid in the air. And of course the health consequences, thousands of people died with bronchitis. Is that right? And it was subsequent to that that the Clean Air Act came in in London and you weren't allowed, I think you initially had smokeless fuel. Um, and now of course, you know, it's gone on from there yes. uh, to more other hazards like um, car, car yeah. exa exhaust fumes. And for you, was that an excitement that, 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 that this was going on, or were you worried about it? I was it? just curious that, you know, when we got in, everybody's faces, and we, we got um, <laughs> scars around our faces, but everybody looked like they'd been on a coal mine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and was there a noticeable change, not just in attitude, but in, in, in the weather from then on? I mean, I can't, I can't really remember that, no. because I would have been about five then, uh, and we moved out of London a few years later. Right. And I didn't then move back into London until I went to medical school. Okay. Were you sorry to move out of London? Was it a great place to be when you were little? I mean, you said there were lots of building sites and things. Were they places you could, were allowed to go and play? Or? Well, we were very lucky. We had a big back garden at the back of the garage, which was a sort of a small garage over which we had a flat, yeah. uh, which was rented. When you say garage, it, do you mean a petrol garage or a garage no, for parking cars? No, a sort of maintenance garage. Right. Uh, maintenance garage. Right. Um, 
the garage owner was a bloke called Ginger. Okay. You can imagine the colour of his hair. Yeah. Uh, smoked like a chimney. Um, but I, I can't remember an awful lot about, other than being at school, having quite a lot of friends. I do remember from the medical point of view that the polio outbreak, which was 53, 54, um, and one of my school friends, Olaf, uh, suffered from polio at that time. Fortunately, he survived it, um, but many people didn't. Um, and, you know, there were other sort of diseases in those days that you hardly ever see mm. because of immunisation. Sure, sure. Um, but I do remember the polio epidemic. Yeah, and there are a few people of our age, even in this area, who are still, who are, you know, have got polio mm. from that time. Yes, so, yes. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned a friend at school, Olaf. There, what was what, what the the area you were living in? Was it was it still very multi, was it very multicultural then? Do you remember that at all? Not particularly, but obviously Brixton. We lived about a mile from Brixton, and that's where the Windrush generation first settled. Yes. Uh, one of the areas, anyway. Um, but no, it was largely English, English working class yeah. where we were. Yeah. And your parents? What did they do? My mother had been a manager of the accounts department of a company called Cape Asbestos. Okay. Um, Great place to work. And they're still, yeah, well, they, they still survived <coughs> as a company despite all okay. the litigation. And my father had gone into the army uh, when he left school uh, and then been caught up in the war. So he had sort of six or seven years out right. uh, in India. Uh, came back and he became a salesman for Remington um, Remington Rand. Is that the Shavers people? The Shavers, As in, typewriters it, it, and... I thought it was so good I bought the company, that one. That one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, all right. That's a bit of a change for him, from the army to selling razors, etc. Well, <laughs> probably a relief after being in the war, I would think. Right. But he, like a lot of people of those generation, didn't really speak about his war memories. No. You know, he had, I think he had a lot of good friendships, but I've ne we never really spoke about what action he may have seen. Okay. He, was just, he was in India and Burma fighting the Japanese. Okay. Yeah. Can you hear now? Is that reasonable? Yes, mm. you'd like a little a bit. Little bit. A little bit. Right, I'll speak to you. Okay. All right. So, um, uh, yeah, we talked a little bit about the parents. Were you an only child? No, I had a sister. <coughs> okay. Two years younger. All right. And did that... Um, any of those things, did you feel they had a particularly lasting impression on your life? You know, having a sister, having, having uh, you know, your, the parents, what your parents did as an occupation, being where you were then before moving on, did any of that have any... No, that's fine. I your have remarkably <laughs> few memories of it, and right. other than that I had a remarkably happy childhood. Right, okay. And my parents were very non-interventionist. Yeah, <laughs> meaning they were very happy for you to do what you wanted to do. Mm, they made one big decision on my behalf, which is I wanted to leave school at 16, and they said no. Mm. It, was, it was a wise decision. Yes. Um, but that was about the only time they wanted to do it. Obviously, they had been educated. My mother left school, I think, at 14 or 15, and my father at 16. Um, because they so, wanted to, or because... No, it was, it was because it was a necessity. Okay, yeah, um, so they had to earn a living. Well, my mother's family... Um, were farm labourers in Essex, um, and my father's father was from a New Zealander who came over in the First World War, 
and was a taxi driver. Um, so, yeah. Uh, Richard Shepherd, could I ask what you attribute your happy childhood principally to? Having no anxieties about my parents, their relationship, um, having a remarkable amount of freedom. Um, even within London, when I was sort of between the age of five and eight, I used to sort of to and go, come and go to school by myself. Yeah. Um, and then when I was in Kent, was in the countryside, a small village, um, lots of friends from school, um, endless play. Sadly, these things don't really apply today, do they? Well, to the same. I'm still. Not, yeah, I think. I think. One of the problems is that parents are over-anxious mm. and over-protective. Mm. You know, kids have got to learn mm. to mm. develop their character yeah. and, yeah. and learn about danger. Yeah. You can't protect them. Yeah. Mm. But what you're saying is that you felt you had a very secure environment yeah. on, from which to go out and come back to, I think, yeah. which is important. Mm. Can we go to school a bit? Um, what was school important? Um, was there any, did you have any particularly memorable or influential teachers? Anybody who inspired you particularly at that stage? Well, I wasn't very good at school, um, which sounds a bit odd since I became a doctor. And in retrospect, it's because I had difficulty reading and understanding the written word. So I'm sort of probably borderline dyslexic. So if I ever write a letter to anybody, I have to get my wife to check it for spelling and grammar. <laughs> well, I can speak perfectly well, yeah. but if I have to put it down as written symbols, I've always had difficulty. Yeah. And so I didn't do very well. I failed the 11 plus uh, and then went to a Catholic day school, um, which was all right. Um, but I didn't, didn't really enjoy the religious aspect of it. Um, the only good thing was that we were sort of C of E so when the Catholic boys had to go to Mass on the numerous saints days we had a day off that was about the only good thing about it um, and I got enough O-levels uh, to then go on to the grammar school in Kent which was um, a school called Judd just in Tunbridge um, and I had a good sort of I did, I did another year of the fifth form there get, got more O-levels I then went into the sciences, and I found the sciences much easier to study. Right. Um, and when it came to going to medical school, there wasn't particular concern about my A-levels, um, but it took me six goes to get English O-level. Oh. Right. Yeah. I just couldn't do it. No, I understand. What but I'm actually, yeah, I've got geography, history. I got English literature first mm. time, mm. but I just couldn't do the English language. Yeah. And of course, you, it was a basic requirement to go to university: English, mm. mathematics. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Anyway, took me two attempts. Yes. So and then, you was, then you had to do something called use of English if you went to university. Did you get caught with that? No, no, no. All right. No, okay. No. I failed that as well. So. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. I was thinking if you had difficulty writing, maybe that was a good, um, good training for doctor's signatures on prescriptions. I did manage, you know, well, this is the problem with computers, is that I now can't disguise my spelling mistakes. I can disguise them as a squiggle. Yeah. And, uh, but I, my style of studying, and again, I never had any difficulty particularly with 
scientific terms, and particularly with medicine, where the derivation of a lot of the words is, is Latin or Greek, and it is spelled as it sounds. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So easy. Yeah. I could spell you know great big long scientific words, but if you ask me to spell where, <laughs> I could be in trouble. Or yes. bear. Yes. Because you know there are two choices, and you always get the wrong one. Yeah. Well, that's, certainly for me, well, that's I the took case. A certificate. Two friends failed English, and they had to leave. They didn't get the school certificate. Okay. Mm -hmm. They yeah. got their other subjects. And I, I don't English. I don't think that dyslexia was particularly common diagnosis. No. I, there's a guy was at the Catholic school, Rick Marchant. He had terrible dyslexia. Couldn't spell at all. Very good at science, um, and studied science subsequently. Um, but the more sort of borderline people like myself who sort of struggle through, I found a way of studying which was, I developed a visual memory for things. Yes. And I would write keywords down, um, which would stimulate a memory of yes. much many more facts. I think that's true for lots of people with dyslexia. I mean, the trouble well, with, 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 well, I think the problem was that it was seen as a middle class disease for a long while. Uh, as if, you've could, if you could afford to have it, you had it. Mm. Um, but it's now recognised as being a, a registered disability. Oh, good. Um, and, and also, <laughs> well, yeah, if you go to university, you can get help, yes. particular help well, with it. Yes. Um, and, and more than that, it's recognised as being a gift, not just a limitation. Often people with dyslexia have other qualities that are stronger because yeah. of that deficiency, and they have to find ways of negotiating it. But when you said... Um, School wasn't great. I don't remember the exact words you used. Was it that you didn't particularly enjoy school early on and that when you got to the grammar school it became more enjoyable for I some reason? It, I found it study a bit of a struggle. Hmm. I said once I got into physics, maths and chemistry for A-level and we had very, very good teachers at Judd School. They were fantastic. Hmm. Um, I really enjoyed it. And you didn't have to I, do essays anymore. Exactly. You made notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and similarly, when I studied medicine, you never didn't have to write an essay. Essay, you just had to get as many facts down, sure. Um, sure. hopefully in the right order. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you begin to think at this time that you wanted to be a doctor? Had you any idea as you began to go through the education system what you wanted to go on to do? Well, it was getting to upper six, and. Uh, Guys were thinking what they were going to study and, and the options for work were often... To go. In those days you could become a lawyer, an accountant without going to university. So people were going into that with their A-levels. Um, I didn't fancy the idea of commuting uh, or working in the city. And I thought, oh, maybe we had a very nice family doctor. I thought, well, that sounds like a... looks like a nice thing to do. Um, so I inquired of the, of the uh, careers department, and they said, oh, yes. Yeah, we did have one bloke. He went to Guy's. Why don't you apply there? <laughs> and uh, so the, the careers advice was a bit patchy. Yeah. Anyway, I filled in my university application form uh, and subsequently was interview interviewed at St Mary's Hospital in Paddington which was quite enlightened in those days because you were interviewed by a student, a member of the academic staff and a member of the clinical staff. Um, I can remember all three, but the member of the clinical staff was Roger Bannister. 
All right. Uh, and uh, at the time, when I, I was quite good at sport, uh, I was a pole vaulter and a long jumper. And so Roger rather settled on this and said, how far could you long jump? I thought, well, I can't, he's not gonna, I'm not going to be able to demonstrate it here. So I took my best ever jump, added six inches and a following wind, <laughs> and long jumped into medical school. There was a slight hiccup, though, in that, in that we, we, we sat an intelligence test before we were interviewed. And, uh, oh dear, I've done this before. It's called the 11 plus and the 13 plus. This is going south. And Anyway, it didn't. Uh, and the other thing about St Mary's is if they liked you, they made you the minimum offer, okay. rather like Oxford and Cambridge. Yes. So, to be offered three E's at A-level to get into medical school. Goodness. Those were the days. Yeah, well, I got, I got places there. I got three D's without interview at Liverpool. Three D's and a C, two D's and a C at Birmingham, and I went to interview at Guy's, and they offered me three C's. Three, three E's. Yeah, three C's okay. at yeah. Guy's, which yeah. was, I mean, now you've got to have straight A's, yeah. and I'm not sure that's a good idea. Um, anyway, so I plumbed for the one, the lowest bar. Sure. <laughs> but also, you know, I had a very happy time at medical school. Yeah, yeah. Did your parents have ambitions for you that were the same or different? No, no, this is why I say they never really pressurised me. And I suppose, like a lot of people who are my generation, your generation, I was the first person to go to university. Yes. Um, amongst made... my cousins, I was the only one. Um, Which made you a freak? Made you a freak or, or tremendously uh, proud? They were tremendously proud of... I think they were proud. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think they were, as I say, they were just very supportive, but they never sort of interfered and they, they didn't sort of come and see me at medical school or inquire how things were going. Same when I was doing my A-levels. You know, I was sort of slightly beyond their education achievement at that stage and I yes. think they said, well, let him get on with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, they didn't why? have to pay any money. No. Mm. Well, you had a, a maintenance grant by the time I went to medical school, my father had done well and he was now working for Chubb's security as a managing director. So he had, they paid me um, a, a sum each week for me to live on. Yeah. Um, but that was... Well, it would have been means about, tested. Yeah, it was means yeah. tested. I, and from memory, I think it was about seven or eight pounds a week I cost them, mm. of which three pounds was rent. For a flat. Mm. Sure. <laughs> well, a room in a flat. Yes. Yeah. Do you think it was easier to be a doctor then? I mean, is that kind of what you're feeling? Or that there wasn't that much demand amongst students to want to be a doctor, so they, um, they, the, the grades were low to encourage people in? Or What's your assessment from this vantage point? I think they were all clever boys. Um, when I went to St Mary's, they all got, most of them got the same offer. Um, but we had our 50 years since they went to medical school reunion last year. And ten of them had become professors of this, that and the other. Mm. They were all clever people. Yeah. And some of them were outstandingly clever. Right. Well ahead of me. Um, so I, I think they're a slightly more diverse group 
the intake was largely male. Um, 15% were female. Uh, there was a heavy representation of doctors, the family history of doctors. Um, so it was a family business. Yeah. And of course, probably... 30% had gone from public school. Right. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So it wasn't very representative. No. There were, but there were lads from working class backgrounds, usually with parents who had high aspirations for their children. Sure. Sure. Mm. Wanted to get them into a profession. Yes, yeah. yes. As, as happened with the Asian community yeah. later on. Yeah, yeah. Seen as the right thing to do. Mm. Do you think um, you know, the boys were, and you're saying predominantly boys, they could get away with it so they didn't work as hard as they, you know, if they'd have needed three A's, they'd have got three A's, but they only needed three E's, so that was fine. Or did, that didn't make any difference, really? Everybody did well in their A-levels. Right. I mean, I got a couple of A's and I slipped up in maths. I just scraped an E there. Um, but I hadn't, done, I hadn't done zoology at school, so I... I had to do an extra year when I got there, what was called first MB. Um, right. And I think all the guys got good A-levels. Okay. I, I remember that um, the, the, the people doing humanities spent all their time doing essays, and the people doing sciences spent all their time playing cards, because they, um, they, their work didn't take as long to do. And uh, <laughs> that, would that fill your memory, or not really? No. No. It, Medical education is, has always been pretty full on, and mm. <clears throat> you've got a lot of you've got a lot of lectures to go to. You've got a lot of subjects, um, a lot of facts to get in. Um, so we used to work pretty hard, actually. Mm. Mm. We played pretty hard too. Um, I mean, I, my during my sort of time, I would play rugby twice a week, water polo two or three times a week squash once once or twice a week but then we'd work every evening and that was allowed as it were within it was expected it was expected at St okay. Mary's right okay I mean the old joke about St Mary's was that uh, as you came through the door somebody had slipped you a rugby ball and if you caught it you were in <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was in medical school with John J.P.R. Williams okay so uh, when I I mean when I was playing rugby at St Mary's I was never good enough for the first team, always played in the seconds. The first team, half of them have been county players at schoolboy level, mm. English uh, schoolboy players, and we used to play Richmond first, mm. yeah. uh, we used to play Bath first, Bristol first, sure. big teams, sure. the first team, and they used to win sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just got smashed. Mm. Were you a scrum half? I was a... Centre and a fullback. Okay, all right. So you got dropped on. Yeah. <laughs> you you said in the information you sent me that you 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 went on to have a number of house jobs when you. Uh, I don't know whether this is during training or subsequent to training, and I'm not quite sure what a house job is. Okay. Well, again, the career structure has changed since I left. But what used to happen? You'd qualify after five five years, and then you'd do your two lots of house jobs. There was junior house job when you were very junior. Uh, uh, and that would be in medicine or surgery. And you were basically nursed along by, by the ward sister. Okay. She was your best friend. 
uh, you worked incredibly long hours, um, were quite exposed um, to things that you didn't really feel competent to deal with. Anyway, once you survived that, um, you were then went on to senior house level. And that had some sort of choice reflecting where you wanted to end up. So if you wanted to end up as a cardiac surgeon, you might do a job in cardiology at SHO level, and then you might do a cardiothoracic surgery job. Okay. And then you would, after you'd done a year of, uh, at senior house officer level, um, you would then go to the registrar level, junior registrar, and then eventually senior registrar. The senior registrar post would be for four years. So most people getting to be consultants in hospitals would be rare to get there before your mid-thirties. Right, right. Um, whereas now you can be a consultant usually after about six years training. So, right. And would this have been largely choice? You know, at the junior house level, oh, yeah, you think, you, I fancy yes. doing that, so yeah, I'm oh, going to yes. have a go at it? Yes, well, what I... Yes, and one of the things that stimulated my interest in general practice was when I did it as a student. We only did two weeks, but I was with a, a lovely guy called Harry Levitt, who had been uh, the president of the Royal College of GPs, and he was into uh, psychoanalysis and the psychological aspects of physical illness as well as mental illness. And this was a complete eye-opener to me. I thought, that's what I want to do. Um, and so I then looked towards the sort of jobs that I would need for general practice. And at that stage, when I qualified, people could just basically do their basic house job. And then they could go into general practice. So they didn't have a very broad experience. So they then instituted GP training, which was an two years at the SHO level, and then a year in general practice under supervision. And there weren't many courses around at that time, and I came up to Norwich, um, by chance, um, where I did a, a wide variety of jobs. Hmm. Um, again, the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital in those days, well, we had far fewer consultants. I mean, the, the Department of Neurology now has nine neurologists, uh, the dermatology has about six or eight. Rheumatology has about six or eight rheumatologists. I was the SHO to the rheumatologist, the dermatologist, the neurologist. Mm. And I had one session when I had to be the SHO to the cardiologist. Yeah. It was kind of busy. Yeah. A fantastic exposure. Sure. Um, learned a huge amount. Sure. Could you just, before we leave the house bit, could you just tell us what were particular rewards and challenges of that time? What, what were the rewards of working in, in that way? Um, in, You've got a lot of experience. Um, there was a, it was very, very sociable. You worked very long hours, um, 100 hours plus a week. Um, so one of your problems was just keeping your eyes open. Right. You know, you could be on, come on, my worst job was at Hillingdon in the surgery, surgery job there. I'd be on on Friday, and then I'd be on call for the weekend, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and I'd get off on Tuesday evening, and I'd be continuously on call at that time. Right. So one of your problems was actually getting some sleep at some point. Yes. Um, and 
I used to do that by counting, counting patients. I'd, I'd visualise the patients on the ward thinking, <laughs> I must, you know, that person needs a blood count, that one needs some blood cross match, and I'd, I'd have a list of things that I've got to do the following morning. I never got to the I'd never got down the first line, actually. I'd be asleep. <laughs> but it was very, very busy. Yeah. Um, but you were, were very well looked after. In, by that I mean somebody would bring you a cup of tea in bed in the morning. Mm-hmm. Knock on the door. Cup of tea. Um, sometimes somebody said, one cup or two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you had your meals cooked for you in the doctor's mess. Right. Uh, and they would, you know, keep a meal for you if you were operating or something. Mm. Um, and at Norfolk and Norwich, you would be have, a, have your meals with the consultants. That was kind of handy because when I was working for so many of them, I'd often need to get second opinions from other consultants, so I could actually collar them. Yes. Um, over meal time. Over lunchtime. Mm. They were yeah. fine with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So well, it, was, it was hard, and you and you had. Well, I was at a basic level. You had your registrar above you and the senior registrar. Sometimes you were just on... When I was on for obstetrics and gynaecology, it would just be me and the consultant who was on that night. Yeah, Um, Yeah, and a lot of business gets done over meals and photocopiers and coffee and whatever, doesn't it? So, yeah. yeah. Um, You you decided to come and do the GP training. You mentioned that a bit. Just wondering, what was your first impression of Norfolk? When you came up here, Norwich, what flat, <laughs> windy, cold, <laughs> but you didn't go straight back again. You and it didn't have a decent curry house. Uh, no, no, there, there wasn't. A, there wasn't a curry restaurant in Norwich until I'd been here a year. Okay, uh, you're taking some responsibility for that, are you? Well, <laughs> my wife and I. One of my jobs had been down in Hillingdon, which was near Southall. Yeah. So we used to have fantastic. Indian food there. And in fact, when we were on call at night at Hillingdon and Casualty, I'd, we'd get, we'd phone the order through to the Indian takeaway, or the restaurant takeaway, and then we'd get Sister to phone the police and get them to bring it round. <laughs> it was just a different, you know, smaller world and kind of friendly. Um, so, yeah. But... But it was equally friendly in Norfolk and Norwich. Sure. And Norwich, what did that feel like compared to being it in was London? Very different. Uh, what are, one of the things I really missed uh, was music. Now, in those days, there was the Jacquard cl- Club um, in Magdalen Street, and there was Black Anna's in Burr Street, <laughs> uh, and that was about it. But when I was working, uh, when I was a student, I, was, I, I always liked jazz. Um, and I used to go to a place called Bull's Head in Barnes. Right. Uh, when I was a student and, uh, well, you know, when I was working as well. But I wasn't on call, I was down in the Bull's Head. And you see people like Humphrey Littleton mm-hmm. playing there, mm-hmm. wonderful character. Yeah. What so year? I missed that very much. What year was this? This would have been... Well, I arrived in... In Norfolk Norwich, 1975. I went to medical school in 67. So this would have been 70 through to 74. Right. Mm. Yes. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. And, and Norwich was still agricultural. Where Castle mm. Meadow was, there was still the 
Wednesday market there before it moved out. Mm. Um, and the economy was still largely agricultural. Right. Tourism was developing. Um, and agriculture still had a lot of workers on the farm. Sure, sure. You got on all right with the language. <laughs> Good question. Uh, my first job was at the David Rice in psychiatry. And I came home to my wife and said, I can't understand what they're saying. Because in those days there were stronger Norfolk accents. Uh, but after about a month, I, I didn't need a translation. <laughs> it's a very, very clever dialect. Hmm. I mean, the word do has got three extra meanings in Norfolk. It can mean you must, it can mean other, otherwise, and it can mean if. Hmm. And they're all embodied in a story where, where a young lady leaves her little girl to go away on holiday, or a little boy to go away on holiday to London, and, and the passing advice was, do you make him do as you do? Do he ought to do as he ought to do? And do you don't do as you ought to do? Do you give him a do it? Like your brother too. Fantastic. <laughs> 1978, you decide that you're going to join the whole medical practice or you're going to start that? There is I, was invited, I was invited to join. Okay, so you got to know these people while you were working in Norwich or? Andrew Latton, who was a year ahead of me, uh, had been on the um, vocational training scheme. He cut short his house jobs because Tony Alibone uh, needed some help. When I joined, Holt practice had some difficulties. It had two sick doctors, and it was, a, it was a, and they were single-handed doctors as well. So meaning, one, what does that mean, single-handed? They, they just worked by themselves. Right. Okay. Uh, they weren't a group practice. Right. Uh, there was less share. There was no sharing of patients. There was some sharing of the out of hours. Um, so Andrew joined, joined Tony Alibone and. There was a vacancy. It was George Neal had died. Martin Jolliffe had moved from the practice, was up the road here, um, and said, "Did I want to join?" So I was interviewed by Tony Alifone. Pretty terrifying experience. Um, got through that and joined the practice. Um, but it needed bringing up to modern standards. Right. That's that's it. Had, yes. It was, it was the time of change. Yes. And was, at that time it was down the side of Richard Scott's shop? Yes. That, um, yeah. So difficult to get to and park near and all of that, perhaps, or not? Well, the test, the only driver's medical was, can you get through the entrance? <laughs> uh, and Jane Hales parked her car many a time on the bollard there. Uh, in fact, does anybody remember Jane Hales? Mm. Well, if Jane was in the practice, uh, I'd, when I'd seen her, I'd say, hang on, Jane, can you give me your car keys? And so I'd go outside and I'd turn her car around and I'd point it in the right direction in the hope that she wouldn't collide with anybody else's car. Um, but, yes. but one of the consequences of having doctors who weren't well was it made it difficult to run the practice. So when I arrived, we had two remarkably... Uh, good nurses who were basically running it, right. which was Di Kirby and Jean Jenkins, Jean Jenkinson, who some of you may remember. 
Um, and they were the forerunners of your practice nurse, but they got there by default. Yes. Um, and they were working sort of largely unsupervised. Mm-hmm. Never had any complaints, yeah. um, but it was, it was kind of, yeah, it was a risky time. Okay. Tell us um, a bit about the life of a GP then. What, what did that involve? Well, it was, it was quite different um, in that you did the normal morning and evening surgeries, um, but we did much more home visiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cars weren't generally available, particularly for working class people, mm. and this is a very rural area. We covered an area approaching 200 square miles. So when I joined the practice, uh, we had surgeries in Blakeney, and we had the surgery down there and there at Holt. We had patients from Wells to Upper Sheringham, mm-hmm. and inland to Matlusk, mm-hmm. Gresham, Corpusty. Mm-hmm. We did Bristol, although there was a practice that subsequently joined us at Melton Council, which is Jeremy Meanley. So we had this huge area. Mm. Um, and on a Monday, I could quite often do, just by myself, 12, 14 house calls. Mm. So you really had to skip round. Mm. Yeah. Um, we did a couple of branch surgeries. I inherited one from Bill Nixon, which was down in Corpusty. And there's a Methodist chapel in Corpusty, and beyond it are three cottages. And I was in the one right next to the Methodist chapel. <laughs> I used to go down there on Monday morning, and people, no appointments, people would just turn up to be seen. Uh, and I'd often take some drugs down if people had ordered them. Um, but the facilities were somewhat crude in that the patients would wait in the ladies' living room. I had this tiny little room, which was about 12 feet wide, long. It was only about 6 feet wide, and it had a fireplace in it, in which there was a fire. But if the wind was from the north, I had to have the window open, because we got smoked out. (laughs) And then I had nowhere to examine a patient. So if a patient needed to examine, I'd say, well, you have to go home, and I'll I'll examine you. There's no examination count. Uh, And then when I finished, I wanted to wash my hands. There was a tap that came through the wall to the basin in the, in the kitchen, um, which basically collected the rainwater off the roof. <laughs> I did this branch surgery for a couple of years, and then we thought, no, we can't do this any longer. And it wasn't very good use of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did a similar surgery in Bristol, which Andrew Latton used to do. Um, and we, we gradually withdrew from those. The other thing we did at those days was a lot more obstetrics. Um, but Can you explain I mean, that? Yes. Well, looking after pregnant women, it wasn't a midwife-led service as much. There were lots of midwives. Um, but there were many more home deliveries, or you went to a maternity home. So the one here was up at West Runton. Long Acre. Long Acre. Um, and uh, so you when you were on call. I, I used to have to do the on call for Tony because he felt he wasn't experienced in, in obstetrics and I'd done quite a lot of obstetrics. So I get called often in the middle of the night, you know, the woman was fully dilated. And my general rule was that about half an hour it took me to sort of get dressed, get there. If I didn't hear the baby crying, oh, I'd have to do something. <laughs> and we used to do things like forceps. Uh, um, only simple forceps um, and 
if a placenta needed removing because it been, didn't come away, you used to deal with that as well. Right. Um, but uh, and and because of the amount of obstetrics, Andrew Latin, who I mentioned earlier, had not completed all the normal SHO jobs. We had to give him six months to go to King's Lynn to do an obstetric house job, so that he had enough experience to deal with the sort of clinical problems we faced up at Longacre and at home. Right. So. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, were you ever off duty as a local GP? Oh yeah, we we had a rotor, um, and we always had four partners. Although Tony Alibonis, he got to be mid fifties, was finding the night work very hard, so we then took that off of him. Um, so there was four of us, but uh, with people on holiday, you pretty much did three nights a week on call. But the other thing was that. Your family were on call with you. Mm-hmm. There's no mobile phones. Mm-hmm. Um, patients would phone for surgery, then they'd have a phone number, my home phone number, and then they'd phone me and we'd talk about what it was, and then I'd usually have to go out and see them somewhere or other. The phone at lunchtime was put through to the house, so my wife had to be there at lunchtime. In the evening, she had to be there from 6 o'clock until 8 o'clock the following morning. And if I was out anywhere, I'd just used to leave the phone numbers, if there was a phone number, of where I was. Uh, so if she got a call in the middle of the night, she'd then have to sort of wake up, phone me, and I'd go on from there. Yes. Um, so she was restricted. Yes. So the wives got interviewed. Okay. But not paid anything. Yes, they were. Oh, were they? Okay. Yeah, we used to pay them at just up to the national insurance level, mm-hmm. um, which they were very grateful for. But, I mean, as an hourly rate. Yes. Yeah. But, again, we used to do long hours. On, on, I'd do a weekend on call was you'd do a Saturday surgery, somebody do the visits. You were then on 24 hours Saturday, 24 hours Sunday, and then you'd finish 6 or 7 on a Monday. Mm. It was hard work. Sounds like but it. But I was younger. Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> Did you regret going into GP work at all? I mean, not necessarily no, around always, here, but... I always enjoyed it. I, I was very, very fortunate in that I had fantastic partners, in that they were very equitable personalities. We got on well together. We didn't necessarily socialise. Mm-hmm. Um, they were all extremely competent and well-trained, uh, and they're all forward-looking. Um, and I don't want this lot to get too big-headed, but we actually had nice patients. The <laughs> um, you know, vast majority of patients were very, very nice. Um, we had a heavily biased practice towards the elderly, as we have now, it's increased, mm. which made the medicine more interesting. Right. Um, Can you explain that? Why did it make it more interesting? Well, they've got more... They've actually got more physical diseases. Right, OK. Uh, <laughs> and as time goes by, and as drugs and things develop, you could do more for them. Um, and one of the problems for the elderly in those days was they had low expectations. And so if you could actually make them feel better, yeah. not cure them necessarily, but mm. feel better, um, they were very grateful. Mm. Um, Obviously, some patients were troubles. Of course. But we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Is there anything you're particularly proud of during that time? Or Surviving. <laughs> or regret? Regret? It's only just 
No, I don't think. I mean, it was it was quite stressful as a job because there was always an element of uncertainty. You were seeing <coughs> potential diseases at a very very early stage, so it was picking who was unwell, who might be unwell, mm -hmm. and who would have a self-limiting illness and get better by themselves. Now, the great advantage in those days was that you, we liked people to see the same GP, so you had continuity. Mm. That meant that you also had continuity of, you didn't have to go over things each time the patient yes. came in. Mm -hmm. You'd already got the history. Um, you'd also got a visual memory of what they looked like. And you could say to people, you know, well, you don't look well, or you've lost weight. Um, so, and I enjoyed that continuity of care. Um, I enjoyed the, used to, we used to do quite a lot of counselling in those days. Yes. You know, half an hour talking to patients, counselling about stuff. You and the minister, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we were better paid. Poor old minister, <laughs> he was lousy paid. Yeah. Um, but we were well paid. Yeah. Mm. Lots of people, professional people, um, feel somewhat of a fraud in their lives, like they're, they're expected to know a lot more than they really do. They're kind of muddling through on what they do. Is that true of doctors, or in your case, um, uh, you know, do you understand what I'm saying by that? Not that you I were a fraud, but that just there was that feeling that being called a professional meant you were somehow expected to know far more than you, you really did know. Um, I don't think so. I, I think because good clinical diagnosis is always a challenge. You've always got to be aware of the possibilities and you learn by your mistakes and, and you will make them. So the biggest problem is can you cope with the uncertainty? And one of my partners who was a, who was a superb doctor um, was Roddy McLeod and he couldn't. And he did the best thing which is he went into the sabbatical in palliative care. Uh, and he took up palliative care and is now, saw him a couple of years ago, he's now a professor of palliative care at Sydney University in Auckland. Mm -hmm. um, because he couldn't feel he could do enough for the patients. Right. Well, it does I was always able to separate my professional uh, life from okay. my home life. But he used to take the stuff home. Right. Because mm -hmm. yeah. there is also a sense as a patient that you sometimes feel you're in a situation where the doctor's saying, let's try this, and then <laughs> come back here and let's try this, and that there's this element of guesswork, and that if only you could see someone who really did know. Um, is, that, is that fair? I don't know. We, we spent a lot of time... I'm running out of time. Yeah, I know but, that. It, but in, in my time as a GP trainer, a lot of our time was spent on the consultation technique. And we used to use a model which is very much about working out what the patient's agenda is. And I'm sure you've all experienced this. You go to the doctor with something you want to say. You say a little key word, like chest pain, and all of a sudden you've got the third degree. Because the doctor's interested in chest pain because it might mean you've got a heart attack. You're interested in it for other reasons. So the, the sort of technique that we used to involve involves sitting back, letting the patient talk, um, and I used to say to the, my students and, and, and the, um, the, the, the trainee GPs, patients come with three things. They won't come out in the order yeah. of what is the patient's priority. They'll often 
give you a trial on one thing, and if you pass that, they'll give you another. <laughs> um, and we'd sit in surgery, play this game, and I'd, I'd, you know, they'd see me, and I got two fingers like that, and we'd sit there, and, and anything else? And then the third thing would come out, and I'd go. <laughs> so it, 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 is, it, it is all about the consultation and getting the most out of it, um, and letting the patient decide the agenda. Has that, has that suffered, do you think, the, 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 the cut down under, in the amount of well, time? Well, doctors are under a lot of pressure. Um, one of the biggest changes has been the amount of admin. Some of it, because you can do many more blood tests, many more investigations, um, a lot more communication with hospitals. Um, you spend a lot of time monitoring chronic diseases. It's a busy, hard life. Mm. Um, <coughs> Yeah. And that's why the out of hours wasn't sustainable. Sure, sure. No, For other reasons as well. Yeah, yeah. And what, uh, I know you've got to go in a minute. What, what are the biggest changes you've felt have been in Holt, Stroke, Norfolk in the time that you've been here as a doctor or just personally? The development of group practices has been a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, the rise in the number of women in practice. We'd always had one lady partner, but now at Holt, the majority of the partners are ladies. I think that's a good thing. Um, the drugs. The drugs make a big difference to people now. Mm. When I first started, we had some drugs, but they've been improved and they've... People survive things that they wouldn't have done in the past. Mm. Um, better monitoring of patients. Um, due to a certain extent by a contract introduced a number of years ago where GPs are paid by results of sorts. Um, it has though, the downside of that is it led, has led to a bit of tick, tick box medicine, you know. You go, and again, get to the, the patient's agenda. The patient comes in with an agenda, the doctor's got an agenda, he's got to ask, make sure he's weighed them, check their blood pressure and ask them whether they smoke and when they, you know, how much alcohol they're drinking. So you, you've got a competing agenda here, yes. which creates a tension. Yes. Um, and, of course, we all know, it's difficult to get to see a doctor. Yes, yes. And that's because of the investment. When I, when I was... Um, I think I have probably had the best of general practice, the best of the health service. And so in that respect, I feel very, very lucky. Um... I forgot what I was going to say now. But anyway, carry on. Okay. I'll come back to me. Okay. Um, we haven't touched on you being a doctor at Gresham's for 27 years. Um, was that different? Was that, was that, you know, I mean, that obviously complemented in some ways, but I imagine some of the issues were the same and some of them were, were it was, markedly different. Yeah, it, it was relatively easy. There was a lot of sports injuries. Um, there was uh, the introduction of girls to the school, which creates its own problems. Um, not the girls, but the boys. <laughs> uh, problems for them. Um, and it was, it was largely done and dusted, so I used to go there at eight in the morning before the school started, see the kids that needed seeing, then I'd be gone. Right. I'd be in surgery at nine. Right. Um, and so it didn't involve you much outside that, particularly? No, no. no. No, no, we didn't have to go to attend rugby matches or anything like that. Mm. Um. Well, there are lots of other questions I've got here, actually, but I know time's going. And um, 
Uh, maybe we'll have to get you back. We'll see. But um, just, just in terms of the place, what what have you no noticed has been the biggest change in in Holt, say, in the time that you've lived in the area or, or this area of Norfolk? Population. The growth thereof. Yeah. When I joined Holt, we had a list size of five and a half thousand. Uh, Martin up the road had another six hundred patients. So we're just over 6,000 patients. And then if you included Melton Constable, which is Jeremy um, and Trevor, who eventually joined us, they had about 1,500 patients. So about 8,000 patients. Hmm. List size now 15,000. Mm -hmm. So everything, growing. yes, growing. And again, <coughs> a lot more elderly. Yes. So obstetrics withered. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Any unfulfilled ambitions? Well, I would love to play, love to have played a musical instrument, but never, never too late for that. Well, to play it well. Well, that's true. You know, but, um, I'm pleased that my daughter plays the piano. I remember playing the recorder at school, but that's that's my only unfulfilled ambition. Wish that, on the wish list, because I seem to play music. Have a lovely time. Is there a retirement age? The doctors, or are they leaving early now? They're leaving early. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a crisis in medicine looming because they're leaving early because the job is too stressful. In the same way that it's very stressful for teachers. Yeah. True. They're leaving early, they're finding they're demoralised. They are. Maybe their status has changed, both teachers and doctors. It was always, when I was working, a high status profession. Whether we deserve that status, you can think. But it was a high status profession. Um, but it just got harder. I mean, I remember when Ken Clark tried to introduce a compulsory retirement age for GPs of 70, there was an outcry. Because they wanted to go on. Now, you won't get them going much beyond 60. And I, I went part-time at 59 and finished at 63. Uh, and that was quite a long, long career. Um, in a lifetime um, as a GP and, but also yeah. personally is there, if all your memories were going to be washed away on your desert island as it were is there one memory to do with doctoring or life generally that would stand out for you it was a privilege to be trusted mm -hmm. and that's you know people would tell you you know they're in the most thoughts and anxieties on the basis that you had a relationship with them that was secure and confidential. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge privilege. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I must go. Yeah, we're going to have to say thank you so much.